0: Good morning. How are we today? Good. Any Michigan football fans in the house? I've got a promise from the Lord for you, if you are. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He is. And, and if that's true, then he is very near to Michigan football fans, right? You know, I had this whole thing built out today uh, that I was going to you know, make fun of Michigan State fans because Michigan was supposed to win that game by like 20 points, and they didn't. So all of that had to go into the trash. Pride before the fall, right? Pride before the fall. Anyway, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It's so good to be with all of you today. So good to be gathered with all of you today. For those of you who are online, thank you for, for joining us online. Uh, today, we are continuing our series through the life and through the ministry of Jesus Christ that we're calling the way, the truth. And the life. And then last week we saw that that Jesus taught with great authority and that he amazed the crowds that he taught, but but he was not the Messiah that they expected. He was not the Messiah that they wanted. And so today we are going to see a little bit more about what this Jesus is all about in the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you have your Bibles with you or a Bible app on your phone, would you go ahead and turn there now to Matthew chapter 4. That's what we're going to be today. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse. 12, and while you're doing that, I have to tell all of you about this really incredible opportunity that came my way uh, a few months ago while we were in the uh, quarantine phase of of life, and I was in my uh, house, and you see one of my roles here at the church is I oversee communications here, and so that means I oversee our social media accounts, and so I was at my house, and I was sitting on my couch, and I was on our church's Instagram account, and this guy randomly reached out to us. And he had some really, really good news for us. And so I pulled up the message and I looked at it. And do you know what that, that, that good news was? Uh, he had just won the lottery. And he wanted to tell us about this, that he had just won the lottery. But, but, but not just that. Um, he wanted to share some of his winnings with us. Here, check out this message. There it is. A guy reached out named David Johnson. Now, now, ignore the fact that his Instagram name was Sammy Rose, Right? But he wanted to share some of his winnings. Nothing suspicious about this at all, right? Nothing suspicious at all. So I keep talking to this person and ask some more details. And it just turns out that this is just too much money for this guy to handle. And so he has to offload some of it because of a tax burden. And so all he needed was a certified check of $500. Peanuts compared to the $150,000 I was about to get. We were about to get. I was going to share it with the church, right? So I mailed that out to him, and I guess now it's just a waiting game because it's been a few months, I haven't seen that money yet. I went to that guy's Instagram account and it's gone, but no, I'm kidding, I didn't really, I didn't really do that. I didn't send the money to this guy. It was a scam, obviously, but, but those have to work, right? Because they do it all the time. I'm sure they lure in hundreds if not thousands of, of people, and maybe, maybe for you, as for me, it's not some internet scam, but, but, but all of us can probably recount some moment in our lives when we were presented with an opportunity that seemed too good to be true, and we got involved in it, and it, and it turned out that it was too good to be true. Maybe it was some kind of job opportunity. Maybe it was a a relationship. Maybe it was something on the internet, and we got involved in it, and and, and we soon regretted our decision. That the bigger question is, why do we get involved in these sorts of things? Why do these things seem to lure us in? Well, here's, here's why I think these things lure us in. I think it's because deep down inside, each and every one of us want to be involved in something that will change our lives. Deep down inside, each and every one of us long to be involved in some sort of once in a lifetime opportunity that will change our lives professionally or relationally or physically or emotionally. It's what we want, it's what we long for. And while so many of these opportunities uh, never seem to pan out for us, I've got some really good news for, for everyone in this room and for those listening online right now. And it's this are you ready? If you're ready, say I'm ready. I recently came across a lot of money, and if you just send me a certified check of five, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Someone's gonna pull that clip on the live stream and say like Harvest is going prosperity gospel right now. Trust me, they're gonna do that. It's 2020. Um, No, here is the real good news for, 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 for all of us gathered here together today. Jesus invites me to take part in a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. That's our big idea this morning. It's this. Jesus invites me to take part in a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it might not uh, be getting someone's lottery winnings or some long-lost great-uncle's inheritance or or the job of our dreams or the retirement we were always looking for. But listen, Jesus always delivers on his promises. Amen? He always delivers on his promises. And and, and taking part in, in what Jesus is inviting us to what we'll see more about today, it will change our lives, but not necessarily always like we think they will. So hopefully now you've got your Bibles open to Matthew 4 verse 12. Let's pick it up there. Follow along with me as I read. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and so now the John being referred to here is John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was very bold and outspoken in his ministry, and he was very confrontational, and and the Roman Empire had had enough, and so they imprisoned him, and Jesus heard about this, and, and because he had heard about this and knew it wasn't his time to engage with a direct conflict with the Roman Empire, he moves his ministry somewhere else to go lay low for a while. And, and, and he goes to Galilee. We get some more details about that in verse 13. It says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that. Now these two small, seemingly insignificant words, so that, are actually quite important because what Matthew is doing here is he is drawing an implication or a consequence, and he's connecting some seemingly unconnected events to show this really incredible consequence. He's connecting the seemingly unconnected event of John the Baptist getting imprisoned, which then leads to Jesus moving the base of his ministry operations to Capernaum, to this larger picture. Look what he says. And he says, so that... What was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah here, verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has gone. And so what Matthew is 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 doing here is is he's quoting Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2 to be precise here. And, and and what he's showing here is he's showing that these seemingly unconnected events of John the Baptist getting imprisoned and Jesus moving his ministry to this new location actually fulfills this very, very old prophecy from the book, the prophet of Isaiah. Now, now, this isn't the main point that we're going to be driving it off the bat here, but I want to take note of this, uh, that, that nothing in our lives falls outside of the control or the purposes of God. He is in control, and He is sovereign, and He works all things together for the good of those that love Him. And this is a promise that we must hold tight to, especially this year, Amen. So we have this prophecy right here. What's this prophecy all about? Jesus is unpacking, or Matthew's unpacking this prophecy about these two locations, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, these two places were in the northernmost region of Israel, and they were among the first cities to fall during Isaiah's time to the um, uh, rampage of the Assyrian army as they came in and conquered and destroyed and enslaved the people of Israel. They were among the first to feel the brunt force of the Assyrian army, the judgment of God. They went through this season of darkness, but the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 says that while they, meet, while they might be among the first to experience the darkness, the judgment of God, they will be among the first to see the dawning light of God's redemptive love poured out on his people again through Messiah. That they will be among the first to see the dawning of the kingdom. Of God, And we see this in verse 17. Look there. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so here's the first point I-, I want all of us to take note of as we're moving through this passage. And it's this. There is a kingdom coming near to us. There is a kingdom coming near to us. Verse 17 starts off with those three small words from that time. And this is a phrase that Matthew uses throughout his gospel to signify major transitional phases, not only in his gospel, but in the life of Jesus. And so what's the major transitional phase? What's the big moment happening right now in this story, in the life of Jesus right now? Well, it's an announcement. And, and, and an announcement of, of what? Well, it's it's a kingdom. A kingdom is coming. And what is this kingdom that's being announced? Is it the kingdom of Rome? No. Is it some future kingdom, a kingdom of America? No. Is it the kingdom of Facebook? No, God help us, no, right? No, no, no. It's the kingdom of heaven. And this is massive news. And Jesus is announcing it. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But, but what is the kingdom of heaven? And why is it so important? Well, the kingdom of heaven is the same thing as the kingdom of God as we see in the other gospels. Uh, They're synonymous phrases. The reason why Matthew uses kingdom of heaven is because his primary audience were were Jewish readers, and, and they were very particular and reverent about their usage of the name of God, and so they wouldn't write it down, and so they wouldn't say it. And so Matthew, so as to not offend them, calls this the kingdom of heaven, but it's the same thing as the kingdom of God. But either one of those phrases, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, we we don't see them throughout the Old Testament at all. However, we do see in the Old Testament this idea, this theme of of God as king, or the kingly reign of God over his people, his rule and reign over his people. We see it in particular in in this certain set of psalms called the enthronement psalms. And there's one enthronement psalm, Psalm 97, Psalm 97. Uh, where where the psalmist writes, the Lord is king, the Lord is king, and this announcement of God's rule and reign over his people and over all creation and over all the heavens, it's met with cheering and with praises and with loud music and with the roaring of seas and, and, and with the clapping of the trees' hands because God is reigning over his people and over all creation. This is something that Israel longed for. It's something they hoped for. It's something they dreamed, from, dreamed of. You know, they lived in light of their fallen kingdom, their fallen nation. They were currently, at this time, as Jesus is saying this, they are under the oppressive rule of Rome. And so here Jesus comes in. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what might this look like practically, though? What might the kingdom of God look like practically? Well, uh, one way of understanding it is understanding it as the kingdom of, of, of Rome. When you think of Rome, um, you know, Rome, Rome was a massive empire at this time. And it kept expanding and it kept growing under Caesar's rule because uh, whatever Caesar was ruling, they would send out their armies to claim and conquer new territory. And every time they claimed and conquered new territory, what they would do in that territory is they would begin to build Roman temples for the Roman religion, which at the center of that Roman religion was the worship of Caesar, and they would uh, build buildings in the style of Roman architecture, and they'd put up Roman art and Roman sculptures, and they'd you know, bring in Roman, the Roman economy and Roman stores, like a Roman McDonald's and a, and a Roman Walmart and a Roman Applebee's and all of those things, right? They, they would bring in all of that. Why would they do that in these newly conquered territories? Well, they do it for two reasons. One reason they do it is just in case uh, the Caesar or any high-ranking official were to, to go into that town, they would feel like they were at home. They would feel like they were at home because this newly conquered, reformed territory was just like Rome. But they would also do this uh, just in case uh, people were unaware that there was a new boss in town. So every morning when these people woke up and went out into their town, it would look completely different. And they would be reminded... Because of the Roman temples and the Roman architecture and the the Roman sculptures. that, That there was a new boss in town. That there was a new ruler. Someone ruled and reigned over them. And it wasn't who ruled and reigned over them a decade ago. It was now Rome. You see, this is kind of what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is anywhere where things on earth are as they are in heaven. The kingdom of God is anywhere where God's rule, his teaching, his worship, his power, his glory is on display. And listen, we believe, right? We believe that God is coming back here again one day, right? We believe that? Uh, Then we should do everything we can to get our lives and our hearts and our families and our church underneath the rule and reign of God. Because he he is the greatest ruler He is the greatest king. He's the only ruler and king who is perfect. He's the only ruler who who, who has all power and all control. We see this rule and reign of God break through in verse 23. Look in your Bibles at, at verse 23. Jesus is ushering in this kingdom. He says he went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and healing every affliction among the people. Uh, Listen, the amazing things that Jesus is doing here, the declaration of truth and how important is truth nowadays. The declaration of truth and, and, and the healing of diseases and casting out demons and what Jesus is doing is he's bringing in this new kingdom. He's ushering in this rule and reign of God that's so different than anything else this world has ever seen before. But, but it's only partly here. Even today, it's only partly here. And this is what theologians call this concept of the already but not yet component of the kingdom. We can see it and we can taste it and, and we long for it. But it's not here yet completely because we still live in a broken world and we're still broken people. But we have this picture painted of what it will be one day when Jesus is ruling and reigning perfectly. Revelation 21.4 talks about this day. A day when, when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Doesn't that sound amazing? Doesn't that sound like, yeah, I want that now. <laughs> like Jesus, come now. That's what I want. So many of us, just like, we just want to get to Wednesday. We just want to get after the election, right? Like that's our promised land. Like we're just, we're just counting down the days till we get there. Listen, this is what we should be looking forward to. This is the end that should shape our existence. The rule and reign of King Jesus over his people. And we have the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be a part of it. We can't fully see it yet. And how often, how often do we not seek first the kingdom of heaven? How often do we seek first other kingdoms, our own kingdoms, our own ways? How often do we try to find love in a relationship or significance in a job or importance with our children or maybe peace in some substance? How often do we turn away from, from, from God's ways and pursue our own ways? You see, when we do that, we are trading the riches of the kingdom of God for the rags of this world. And part of Matthew using Isaiah's prophecy here, it's not just meant to say, hey, there's this promise coming of the the kingdom coming, but it's a reminder of, of Israel's mistakes. That Israel did this too. That Israel traded God as king for earthly kings. Israel traded God as king for fake gods, and they ultimately suffered massive destruction because of it. But God being rich in mercy according to his loving kindness because he is full of grace, said, I will make a way back. I will make this a reality for you again. And we can have this be a reality in our hearts and our lives as well. Do you want that? Do you want that to be a reality in your heart and in your life? We have the answer here in verse 17. This is how we do it. Look, Look at it again, verse 17. From that Time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the second thing I want us to see it's this. There is a decision demanded of us. There is a decision demanded of us, and that decision is to repent. It's repentance. What does that look like? And what is repentance? And maybe you're bringing in some baggage with that word repent. And you were like, I'm, I was really fired up about that kingdom stuff. But now you're talking about repentance? That does not sound good to me. What does the Bible say about repentance? No. What does the Bible say? If we look at the Old Testament, there are two words that are used for repentance. One of them is nachem. And nachem means this. It means to turn around or to change the mind. And the other word used in, in the Old Testament for the, for the word repent is this word Sub. And it's used something like 600 times, and it's translated as to turn or return or seek or restore. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for repent is metanoia, and that means literally to change one's mind. And so when we take all of that into account, and we have Jesus here calling us to repent, here's what it means. It means this. When we are being called to repent in God's word, it means we are being called to change our minds about our current course of action and turn around and to seek something else. That's what repentance means. It means to change our mind about our current course of action and to turn around and to seek something else. It means I was going one way. I was going this way. I was going my way, the wrong way. I was going after my kingdom, my sinful desires, what I wanted, and I, and I know that's wrong, and I'm turning around, and I'm going God's way now. And I'm seeking his kingdom first, and, and I'm going after what he would want for me. That's what repentance is. And it looks like this. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, my brother-in-law and my sister uh, we're gonna come up and visit us here in Michigan. They live about an hour outside of Chicago. And so they were gonna come up and they were gonna visit us. And so they packed their car up on a Friday and they put their kids in the car and, and they put our address in their Maps app and, and they, 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 they started their journey. Now, the funny thing about a Maps app is, is it doesn't always, doesn't always give you the best directions, does it? No. Anyone ever put an address in there and then all of a sudden you're like on some back road and you're just praying to God that He brings you back to civilization? Has that ever happened to anyone else? Is that just me? A couple other people? I use Bob's map app. Should I get something else? Um, so they put the address in, right? And, and they're making their way up to Michigan. And, and I don't, it was like an hour, hour and a half into their journey. Uh, there's this notification on their, on their map app and it's like, uh, get ready to get on such and such a ferry. And they're like, a ferry? Why are we getting on a ferry? Well, it turns out the the app had sent them up into Wisconsin toward Milwaukee to get on the ferry across to Muskegon. Now, I'm not sure when they realized they were wrong. Like, maybe it was like the welcome to Wisconsin sign. Maybe it was all the ugly Green Bay Packers stickers on the cars. But in that moment, they were faced with a decision. (laughs) Do they double down knowing full well that they are going the wrong way? Or do they humble themselves? And do they pull off the next exit? And do they make their way back the right way? And that's what they did. They turned around and they arrived at our house like three hours later than they had planned but they got there. They got to our house, and we had an amazing weekend, and that's what mattered. We had fun, and I relentlessly made fun of my brother-in-law for that. <laughs> I was like, don't worry about getting me a birthday present. This is the gift that's going to keep on giving for the entire year. <laughs> this is what repentance looks like. We were going the wrong direction, and we turn around, and we start going the right direction. Now, what, what should this look like practically for us, though? Is this a one-time decision where it's like, you know what, I made that decision. I was at a camp one time and I walked down the aisle or I threw the stick in the fire and I made that decision. Is is repentance a one-time set-it-and-forget-it decision or or is it something bigger than that? Is it something more all-consuming than that? Well, when you look at the word that Jesus uses, it's a verb, and it's in the imperative form, so that means it's a command. It's also in the present active tense, which would imply that this decision is, is beyond just a one-time decision, but it's an ongoing thing. And not only that, we see this in the lives of the disciples that Jesus calls there in verse 18. And as I was studying this passage this past week, I saw these verses, verses 18 through 22, and I was like, yo, we, we studied this already at the end of September, We talked about the disciples being called already. Are we going to teach this passage again? But guess what? It's not the same thing. This is the second time that Jesus is calling the very same guys. You see, he had called Simon and Andrew and James and John, and they had followed him for a while, but then they went back to their businesses. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And so, listen, this is a picture of repentance. This is a picture of, 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 of what repentance is. And so, it's not just a one time decision I made that decision, and we said it, and we forget it, and we're done. No, we're called to a lifestyle of repentance. You see, every day the world is going to be trying to lure you in to follow its ways, pull you in and appeal to our sinful flesh to go after the kingdom of this world. But every day we must get on our knees and live this lifestyle of repentance, moving toward the kingdom of God and not our own kingdoms. But What does that look like? Well, a couple things here. A life of repentance moves away from self-reliance and toward God-dependence. A life of of, of repentance moves away from self-reliance toward God-dependence. And so when Jesus found his disciples, they were working hard. They were doing their thing. They were were working for the family business. They were making money. Nothing wrong with any of that. And Jesus calls them away, and they follow immediately. Do you think they had questions? Like, God, where's my my next paycheck going to come from? And God, how am I going to put food on the table? Do you think they wondered about those things? Yeah, for sure, they totally did. And listen, Jesus wasn't like this well-polished-looking businessman. Like, the, the Gospels say he had no place to lay his head. And he, he wandered around, he taught, he healed people, and he's walking by this beach. And these guys are out on their boats and they're fishing. And do you think some of the other guys who were fishing in the other boats were like, what are those dudes doing? Like, why are they dropping their nets and wading out into the water and following this Jesus? Do you think it caused confusion to those around them? For sure. For sure, because this move is countercultural and counterintuitive. It's a move away from self reliance toward God dependence. You see, the world would have you believe that you have to do it on your own, and that you're the master of your fate, and you're the captain of your ship. But listen, what God says is without Him, we are nothing. And if we need wisdom to go to him first and ask him for it, because he will give it to us abundantly. God's word says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So why would we ever worry about where our next meal is going to come from when we serve this king? Taking Jesus up on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of being a kingdom citizen means living a life marked by moving away from self-reliance toward God-dependence. And I could list to you multiple ways that this would look like for you practically, but, but the work of God's Spirit does not start and stop right here. And would we have the faith and the discipline to leave this place and spend some time with the Lord and ask Him, God, show me, convict my heart. Where can I move personally from, from increased self-reliance to increased God-dependence? Maybe it's just spending more time in His Word. Like opening his word and just really learning and loving this, this king that we say we follow and we serve. Maybe it's, maybe it's spending more hours alone in prayer, not trying to fret and freak out and figure out all of, of what's going on in this world and try to connect the dots and plan our lives out, but but humbly just saying, God, I, I can't do this. I need you. I have no idea what to do. My eyes are on you, God. Maybe, it, maybe it's, it's looking at how we're spending our time and our money and, and how we can be more generous with those things instead of figuring out how we can use them to, to shore up our deficiencies and our weaknesses and just trust the Lord with those things and give those away. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you this. Uh, the move uh, away from self-reliance toward God-dependence is, is a move of, of increasing the rule and reign of God in our lives, and that's never a bad decision. A life of repentance, it also does this. It moves away from isolation toward community. A life of repentance moves away from isolation toward, toward really giving ourselves to Christian community and other brothers and sisters in, in, in Christ. And so I'm sure that, that, that Simon and Andrew had, had great community I'm sure they had great friends, they were brothers, I'm sure they had awesome coworkers. maybe they had spouses and, and, and families and they were part of some fantasy football league or maybe it was like a fantasy gladiator league, whatever it was back then. But, but, but in this moment, Jesus is calling them to something even deeper. It's a community forged by this Messiah. It's a community forged with this desire to see the rule and reign of God's kingdom permeate every area of life. This is what they're going after. This is what they are longing for. Not only does a life of repentance look like increased dependence on God, it looks like the increased giving of ourselves to others. Now, this can happen in small groups. Maybe you're part of a small group, and that's great. And if not, why not? You should be. You should get involved in that. But being a part of a small group does not answer this question for us. It's not just getting in a small group. It's, it's going beyond that. And really asking yourself, when I wake up in the morning, am I more concerned about meeting my needs or the, need, or the needs of those around me? Am I more concerned about what my day is going to look like, or am I also concerned about seeing the rule and reign of King Jesus increase in, in those people around me that I love and that I care for? And this is the tougher question right here. Have I invited those kinds of people into my life? Do I have other people speaking into my life? Asking the tough questions, correcting me when I'm going the wrong way? Or am I trying to do it all by myself? That's our natural desire. Our natural desire is toward isolation. The world would push us that direction toward isolation. But we can't do that. isolation always leads to spiritual death. You can be in a small group, and you can still be isolating your heart from those around you. A life of repentance moves away from isolation and toward real, genuine, authentic community. So just before we get to our last point, uh, just to review what we've seen so far in this passage, Jesus is inviting us into this coming kingdom, and there's a kingdom coming near to us, and to be involved in this kingdom work, we, we must repent and live this lifestyle of repentance. And a lifestyle of repentance moves away from self-dependence toward God-dependence. It, it moves away from isolation toward community. And here's the coolest thing about what happens when we do that. When we're obedient in this direction, the Holy Spirit begins to form us into greater Christ-likeness, in, in, into citizens of this kingdom of God. And he prepares us for a work. And that's the last thing we see here in in this passage. It's this. There is a role required of us. There is a role required of us. You know, when Jesus calls Andrew and Simon and when he calls James and John in in verses 21 and 22, he calls them not only to a a lifestyle of repentance, he, he also calls them to a work. And look at the work that he calls them to in verse 19. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus calls them to join him in his work on earth. He calls them away from being fishermen to being fishers of men. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your primary occupation. This is what we are called to. We are called to be fishers of men. But what does that look like? What, What does it look like to be a fisher of other people? What's the net that we use? Well, look at the net that Jesus uses in in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel is the net, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is the net. And would we be a people so underneath the rule and reign of God experiencing the peace and the love and the hope and the joy that comes with the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives that we would be such dramatic, winsome ambassadors for this kingdom? Would this be our one passion, our one desire to go out and tell others about this awesome king? Because he is so awesome. He's so unlike any other king in this world. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is perfectly righteous. He is holy, but he's also kind, and he's also loving. He's humble. He never experienced, while here on earth, uh, some grand, dramatic enthronement ceremony. He never ascended some large marble staircase onto some throne, but instead he ascended a hill and, and, and was hung on a cross. Before that, he was beaten and, and, and his body was broken and he was put to shame. Through his hands and through his feet, he was nailed to that cross. Before that, he was crowned like a king is crowned. But he was not crowned with a crown of jewels, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. And he was mocked and he was jeered at. He died the most unkinglike death And in that moment that the rulers of this world and the kings of this world and the ruler of this world Satan himself they looked at that moment and they celebrated because they thought they would won but death could not hold him down and the grave could not keep him in the ground because what seemed like defeat in that moment was actually a great victory Jesus died in our place. He suffered the death we deserved. He suffered the punishment we deserved. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might have his righteousness. He took on our defeat so that we could have his victory, a victory that breaks us free from the cycle of sin, a victory that breaks us free from the tyranny of pursuing the kingdoms and the ways of this world. And pursuing him. A victory that frees us to live a life of repentance. And when we repent and when we kneel, right now we do not kneel before a throne, we kneel before this cross where our Savior was crucified. And yes, there is coming a day when he will return in, in glory, robed in righteousness, and, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. But until that day, until that day, we are called to a work. There is a role required of us, and we are called to be fishers of men. We are called to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are invited into a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so, especially in the coming days, but in all of life, would we respond to the outrage in this world with love, the same self-sacrificing love we see on the cross, and we would, would we respond to this age of anxiety with peace, peace that is forged in our hearts in, in, in the quiet times with the Lord, a peace that surpasses all understanding? And we, would we respond to the despair that we see with, 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 with hope? Because we do not hope like those who have no hope. Because our King has defeated sin and death once and for all. He has won. And he will remain victorious. And his kingdom is coming. And we are invited to be a part of that once in a lifetime opportunity and it will change our lives. Let's not miss it. Let's pray. Father God, we humble ourselves before you right now and forgive us. Forgive us for for pursuing our ways and the ways of this world and then going after things that that, that promise to deliver what only you can deliver. We thank you for making a way back to your way. That you made a way through your son, Jesus Christ. You call us to a life of repentance. Lord, would would we walk that road we recognize the ways in our lives where we have been going the wrong way? And would you give us the gift of humility to to, to really humble ourselves and turn our lives around and and move back toward you? For all of us, there's something. Or for the individual in this room who's never made that decision at all, God, I pray that you'd be drawing them to you right now. That they would know they just need to confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord they will be saved. God, as we leave this place, I pray that that, that, that the most defining trait of each and every one of us would be that we are followers of King Jesus, that we trust in your rule and your reign, and that we would see great fruit as we go out and we, we declare this gospel, a message that is seen as foolish to so many. But Lord, it's a message of power. And we trust you and we go forth boldly knowing that you will accomplish what you set forth. We pray this all in your powerful name.